What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. However you find this program, podcast platform, CBSN, or more than 75 great radio stations around this country, thanks for finding us. Our guest this week quite genuinely needs no introduction. His name is Anthony Fauci. He's the top infectious disease specialist at the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Fauci, it's great to have you with us. Thank you, Garrett. Good to be with you. So let's talk about where we are and how fearful or anxious people should be about the next six to eight weeks. One of your colleagues on the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Dr. Robert Redfield of the CDC, said yesterday, we are heading into what he believes will be the worst period of weeks in the history of American public health. Do you agree? You know, Major, I have to say that I do. Uh, You know, we don't want to scare people, but if you look at the numbers, what's happening right now, we have been in a in a really serious surge in the few weeks antedating the Thanksgiving holiday. And then what happens is, is the inevitability of people wanting to do things that are natural, travel, be with family, have big dinners. We know that that will almost certainly is going to result in a surge superimposed upon a surge. And what Dr. Redfield was alluding to, Major, was that As you get further into the colder weather in the winter, you're going to have a constellation of events that are just the worst worst possible conflation, where you're going to have colder weather, people indoors, the result of the Thanksgiving holiday superimposed upon an even bigger holiday that's extended not over just a weekend, the way Thanksgiving, but into the Christmas, Christmas, New Year's, New Year's, etc., it doesn't have to be a disaster. It really doesn't. Because if we do the fundamental things, Major, that we talk about all the time, Mm -hmm. the wearing of masks, the avoiding of close contact, the avoiding of indoor-type congregate settings without masks, I know that's difficult to do in the context of the holiday spirit, but I think everybody's got to just make an evaluation of the risk-benefit of doing the things that you really would want to do and then having the consequences as you get into January be even worse than they are right now. Because the numbers, the numbers don't lie. I mean, if you look at them, they just don't lie. I mean, we had 2,600 deaths the other day and 200,000 new cases. I mean, 99,000 hospitalizations. 
that's something you can't walk away from. That's just the reality of where we are right now. And you talked about the numbers on yesterday, according to the Johns Hopkins dashboard, which is an authoritative counting dashboard of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. The United States yesterday recorded 3,157 deaths. And I know that's not all deaths yesterday. That's just as they're recorded. But still, that is by more than 500 higher than the highest recorded number in April, April 15th of 2,603. And that's almost, for those of us who were there and covered it, a 9-11 on one day. At some point, it's, it's difficult and has been throughout this. I know for myself, Dr. Fauci, and I imagine for many of my viewers and listeners, hard to imagine, hard to grapple with that number or those numbers well it's hard to grapple with it major but the thing that's even more frustrating is that there are still regions sections cities and states in this united states of america that still don't think that this is real they 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 think it's fake news or, or or a hoax or or something that's being exaggerated it is reality um i think because we've had such a difficult time of the divisiveness that we've had in this country, that when you talk about public health measures, it sort of triggers polarization. Nobody wants to lock down the country. Nobody wants to ruin the economy. You don't have to do that. When we talk about simple things like wearing of masks and avoiding congregate settings, that doesn't mean shutting the economy down. That means just doing some fundamental public health measures, particularly when you're in a precarious situation like entering cold months and entering a holiday season. And yet the pushback on that is extraordinary. I just, I mean, I I don't really, as much as I've been in this for a long time, it's almost impossible to totally comprehend what the issue is. There are people getting infected and then there are people that are dying at record numbers. And and I know you don't want to get into politics, and I don't want to lead you down that road. I, I really don't. But do you think the comportment at the White House, the attitude about masks, which is to be charitable, let us say flexible, and the utterances of the presidents contributed at all to this thing that you just talked about? Yeah. You know, Major, the way I can stay out of getting into the politics is to say, that what I talk about from a public health standpoint, masks, congregate settings, goes for everyone and everybody, no matter where you are or who you are. So you can take it from there. So do you believe, as the president-elect said yesterday, that with the data that we see, 250,000 more Americans could perish of COVID-19 by the end of January? It is it is possible, Major. I, I, again, whenever, I, whenever people give me numbers that are projections of models, which are reasonable models, you just need to do the math. Because if you look at the number of deaths escalating per day, and you do the math of the number of days between now and the end of January, you can come out with the numbers that you're talking about. I say that in one breath, but in the other breath, I say we don't need to accept those very, very difficult to accept numbers if we do something about it. And one of the things that that we've been trying to emphasize is that help is really on the way. We will be getting people vaccinated in this country 
before the end of December. We, you know, we had the meetings of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices with the CDC. They've put together their prioritization, healthcare providers, those in nursing homes and people who have underlying conditions. Then as we get into January, February, March, we'll get more of the people in the second and third tier of prioritization. And by the time we get, let's say, towards the beginning, middle to end of April, the general population could then really start to get vaccinated in force, which means that you could have a veil of protection around the country within a period of several months. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. So we're all suffering, each and every one of us in a different way, with COVID-19 fatigue. We've been going through this, Major, for almost a year. Remember, our first case was in January of 2020. So it's almost a year that we've been going through this. And it's understandable how people want to throw their hands up and say, oh my goodness, I can't take this anymore. Let's just do what we're going to do. Please don't do that because things will get better. But if we despair and put aside public health measures, they not only will not get better, they'll get worse. And that's the thing that the CDC was concerned about, the possibility, if we don't do something about it, of having even more records broken regarding deaths and hospitalizations. So I want to let our audience know that we're going to have the full compliment with Dr. Fauci. He's been generous enough to give us as much time as he can. So we're going to go bit by bit through this entire process. He talked about vaccines. We're going to have a whole segment on that coming up on the other side of this break. We're also going to talk about the stress that hospitals are going through right now. And if they are near at something approximating a breaking point as they were in the springtime, we're also going to talk about the Fauci effect, which is something I read about the other day. People going to medical school because of Dr. Anthony Fauci and lots of other things. I'm Major Garrett. Dr. Anthony Fauci is our special guest. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just a second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. He needs no introduction. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the National Institutes of Health, is our special guest. Dr. Fauci, how stressed are hospitals right now? And is it true that the reason they are stressed is because they have non-COVID and COVID patients in their intensive care and hospitals, but they may soon, if this trend line continues, have to go back to where we were in the spring, where some hospitals will say, we can only take COVID patients. Is that a possibility? Yeah, it, it is unfortunately a possibility. And, and we're seeing that, particularly in those areas of the country, such as the Northern Plains and some of the Northwestern uh, states, um, the, the heartlands, some of the heartland hospitals that had not had that major surge that you recall so well in the very early spring that we had in the Northeastern Corridor where you had New York and Boston and then you had Detroit and Chicago, New Orleans. You have some of the smaller hospitals, the community hospitals that might, you know, have 20 
20 beds in the whole region, 25 beds that are ICU, and then you wind up having twice as many ICU patients. So not only are you going to have to just be admitting COVID patients, but even some of the patients that need ICU intensive care don't have the beds or the staff who are trained in ICU care to take care of them. So we're perilously close to stretching it to getting the system really, really strained. And as you alluded to, Major, it is true that once you have that many COVID patients, the normal medical care that is important, people who have heart attacks, people who have bleeding ulcers, people who have strokes, they need to go someplace. They need to be taken care of. So not only do you have a situation that's very difficult with COVID itself, but you bump the other things that are really important. And we've seen that at the height of some of the surges where things were left unattended to that wound up in an even worse medical situation. So it's almost like a double barrel hit that you take. And you're very much afraid of that the next six to eight weeks. You know, I am. One of the things that's the dread uh, of any hospital or any healthcare system and I've been in that, you know, I trained for years and years in big New York City hospital, um, that one of the things you get concerned about, even when you don't have something as dramatic as a COVID surge, is when all of a sudden you run out of beds and there are people who come in to the emergency room or get referred who really do need to be seen by a physician uh, and you can't take care of them. That's a terrible situation to be in. We're not there now, but we are perilously close to that in some regions of the country. Obviously, other regions are really in good shape vis-a-vis backup, but some regions of the country are stressed already and will likely get even more stressed over the coming weeks. And if you were to try to explain to my audience the mental, physical, and spiritual health of frontline health workers, what would you say? Uh, I would say that, first of all, they are amazing heroes, Major, I mean, and heroines. If you look at what they do every single day, being not only mentally and physically exhausted, but emotionally exhausted from all of the stress and the strain, and it just keeps getting piled on. So I think that it's remarkable how well they're doing, but they are really, really stressed. So I promised a conversation about vaccines. Let me just get some basic things on the table. Uh, why are the Brits first? You know, I, in all fairness to so many of my UK friends, you know, they kind of ran around the corner of the, uh, of the marathon and joined it in the last mile. I think that would be a good metaphor for it, Major, because um, they really rushed through that approval. The, the, the FDA, the United States of America Food and Drug Administration, is the gold standard of regulation. They're doing it in a very careful way, appropriately, because if we did anything that was cutting corners and rushing, we have enough problem with people being skeptical about taking a vaccine anyway. If we had jumped over the hurdle here quickly and inappropriately to gain an extra week or a week and a half, I think that the credibility 
of our regulatory process would have been damaged and we would have had more people. You know, I love the Brits. They're great. They're good scientists. But they just took the data from the Pfizer company and instead of scrutinizing it really, really carefully, they said, okay, let's approve it. That's it. And they went with it. In fact, they were even rather severely criticized by their European Union counterparts who were saying, you know, that was kind of a hot dog play. I didn't say that. They did. (laughs) In that light, how comfortable are you, Dr. Fauci, with the fact that Dr. Scott Hahn, the head of the FDA, has been summoned not once but twice to the White House this week to meet with the chief of staff about this very issue? You know, I just think that the chief of staff wanted to just get a feel in person about what was going on, wanted to know what, what is the reason why we're taking this long And I believe that Steve Hahn convinced uh, the chief of staff that we were doing it, that they were doing it appropriately. So I think we're going to be okay. It did not strike you as an exertion of political pressure. Well, you know, you could interpret it that way, but I believe it probably was just that uh, Mark Meadows wanted to find out in person what was going on. I'm sure that Dr. Hahn explained to him what is actually going on, that our career scientists at the FDA who are really the best in the world, Major, for sure, were doing their job, and that's what was being explained. So I think, as you're going to see right now, it'll be fine. Would it be helpful in this regard for a statement from the White House saying exactly that? You know, maybe, Major, I I, I can't speak for them and what they do. So the head of the Operation Warp Speed predicted yesterday that there could be, in this country, available by the end of February, 100 million doses, correct? That is correct. That is correct. And when we think about these numbers, Dr. Fauci, we should think of them and divide by two, correct? Because we'll need two doses. Right. The, the two uh, companies that are now having vaccine that's available for uh, administration is Pfizer and Moderna. They are a two-dose regimen. The one that's coming up soon, which is Janssen, which is a subsidiary of J&J, They have a one-dose product, but that's not ready yet. And it is true that over time, meaning in 2021, we could have several available and approved vaccines, correct? Well, we not only we could, we better, (laughs) because we're relying relying on it, Major. Uh, You know, we have, the the U.S. government has contracted with six companies, and we will need all of them if we are going to get the total, which we've contracted for, for approximately 600 million doses for the more than 300 million people in the United States. As someone who is familiar with this process, who spoke in our first segment about resistance to this idea that this is still a dangerous situation, how concerned are you about A, vaccine acceptance, and B, even if it is accepted, the discipline to get that second dose? Well, I'm concerned about the issue of people's skepticism about getting vaccinated. And here's the reason why, uh, A, Major, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about it, and B, myself and my colleagues are going to put a big effort in reaching out to the community to explain to them the process of how the vaccine was made and how it was determined that it was safe and effective so that they could have confidence that this is something where the process was not any compromise of safety and not any compromise of scientific integrity. And you're correct. There are two aspects that make for a successful vaccine program. One, you have to have a vaccine that's highly efficacious. Thank goodness we're there. Even beyond my expectations, Major, we have 
two vaccines that are 94 to 95% efficacious and even better, they're very efficacious in preventing serious disease that would get you to the hospital and possibly kill you. It's very good against that. That alone doesn't make a successful vaccine program. You have to have people take the vaccine. So if you have a 94, 95% efficacious vaccine and only 40 to 50% of the people take the vaccine, you're not gonna get to your end game. The end game is to get a veil of protection over the country and ultimately over the entire world so that you crush this outbreak, just the same way we did with smallpox, polio, and measles. And Dr. Fauci, hold that thought because I want to talk on the other side of this break about that veil of protection and what the statistical norms have to be to achieve it. I'm Major Garrett. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci. Stay tuned for segment three of The Takeout in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Anthony Fauci is our special guest. I believe this is a show you're going to want to keep around for a good long while because we're going to talk to you about things that are not just happening now with COVID-19, but for the next couple of weeks and months. So listen closely. Continuing our conversation about vaccines, this veil of protection. What's the statistical level? Is it 65, 70 percent, 75, 80 percent? Do we know, Dr. Fauci, of vaccination acceptance to achieve it? Well, uh, Major, we don't know the precise uh, number that would give you what we call herd immunity because we haven't been there yet. We know, for example, what it is with measles. Uh, measles is 90, 98% effective vaccine. You need at least 90% of the people to be vaccinated to get a really good herd immunity. We are projecting, and it's only model, so I think it's correct, but I'm not absolutely certain. It's somewhere around 70 to 75% of the people need to be vaccinated. Now, when you have vaccine hesitancy and you fall well below that number, then you really lose a lot of the impact of what your vaccine can do for you. That's the reason why it's so important to reach out to the community, particularly, for example, some of the community that are very uh, severely affected by this, the minority community, African-Americans, Latinx, and others, who generally and understandably in some respects have some skepticism about what the government is essentially trying to get them to do. So we've got a job to do to reach out and convince people to get vaccinated. One of my other podcasts, my only other podcast, is called The Debrief, and we devoted an entire episode last week to vaccines. And one of the experts we talked to said, in the end, faith leaders, meaning your priest, your pastor, your rabbi, and your imam, may prove as important as any public health official in conveying this message and increasing acceptance. Do you agree? I totally agree. I mean, that's, that's what community outreach means, Major. It means people can relate to the people who are outreaching to them and, and people who they trust. And those are the people in the grassroots level at the community. And you're absolutely correct. The faith-based leaders, the priests, the rabbis, the ministers, that's important. Also, sports figures. I mean, it's extraordinary. I've been on some podcasts with some sports figures and entertainers, and then you find out how many people actually linked in to listen to that. It blew me away. I mean, it's like millions of people listen. It's extraordinary. No doubt. And as I understand it, Presidents Clinton, 
Bush and Obama will take the vaccine, do it on camera to uh, assist this effort as well. Indeed, indeed, and as will I. Uh, when are you going to do that? You know, as soon as my turn comes up, Major, I'll, I, I, and I hope it comes up soon, but as soon as uh, it comes up... My guess is you can get pretty close to the line, uh, <laughs> to the very front of the line if you wanted to, is my thought. Yeah, I'm a pretty old, old geezer, <laughs> as it were. <laughs> um, it is my understanding that so far the clinical trials have included those participants 12 and older, but not 12 and younger. Is there a point in time when we need to get 12 and younger also in these clinical trials? Absolutely. And what we do, and the reason that you do not do them right away is that there's no doubt in the history of axonology that you've got to be very careful to protect the vulnerable. And children and pregnant women are clearly among the vulnerable. So what has been done classically, Major, is to get a degree of confidence in the efficacy and the safety of the product in an otherwise normal adult population. Once you do that, then you could do a phase one or phase two A study in a limited number of children or a limited number of pregnant women and determine is it safe and does it induce the same kind of response in that group as in those individuals who clearly were protected by the vaccine in a big, big, big trial. And that's called a bridging. You bridge from the, the smaller trial for safety and immunogenicity to the big trial in the adult. And you say they have comparable responses so you can make a reasonable assumption that it will work in the children and in the pregnant women. We're gonna start with the children very likely in middle to end of January, so that in a couple of months, we could probably have enough data to start vaccinating the children in the second quarter of 2021. What are your thoughts on a mandatory vaccine requirement? Um, you know, Major, it's not gonna happen, I don't think. I mean, I don't wanna get ahead of what others may uh, make a decision, but it is unlikely that it will occur centrally, like from the federal government. It is likely that it will occur individually at different levels. Let me give you an example that I'm here, and you know you're very familiar with the NIH here in Washington. Yes. I take care of patients, so I'm a healthcare provider. If I don't get the influenza vaccine, I will not be allowed to take care of patients. So that is the NIH, the clinical center hospital that you know, making a decision that if you want to take care of patients, you got to get vaccinated with flu. I imagine you're going to see similar types of mandates at the individual level. Perhaps companies are going to say, if you want to be part of this company, you've got to get vaccinated. Or some schools might be saying the same thing. I think we can expect that. Law students know this case. I'm pretty sure those who study your kind of medicine know about it in two, and I know about it as well. 1905, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. It's a case that tested police powers and the requirements or the ability of a state legislature and then a local government to require a vaccination. Back then it was smallpox. And the Supreme Court, by a 7-2 ruling, said, yes, state legislatures can do this, and local police power defers to localities to require a vaccination. And that power is therefore understood. But as I hear you, you don't believe it's going to be exercised in precisely that way. 
Yeah, I think it's going to be more individual local decisions about that. But then again, Major, you know, I don't make that final decision. If it turns out that it is deemed better to do it centrally, well, then so be it. What do you think would be most effective? You know, my experience is that when you make something absolutely mandatory for everybody, there's a lot of pushback and things that get in the way and people think, you know, they're being imposed upon. Um, And you can get the same effect almost by persuasion in general and by some mandates locally. That's just the experience that I've had. Do you imagine a scenario in which people or companies will have an app or something on their phone that indicates that they have been vaccinated? That will be a kind of a proof of entry or confirmation? Yeah, I'm already hearing discussions about that. I would not be surprised, Major, if that actually happens. And for those who are trying to imagine what the next couple of months look like, military trucks carrying Walgreens, CVS, and your doctor's office administering, correct? That is correct. I think what people need to understand when they hear the idea of military and the United States Army, they They sometimes get a little nervous. The military, as part of Operation Warp Speed under General Gus Perna, is responsible for the transportation of the product from where it is made and stored to the local state and city uh, locations. Once the product is there, the administration of it is handled through the local public health apparatus, likely through places like CVS and Walgreens and doctor's office. It will not be the military administering the vaccine for sure. And that is because it's too scary to have the military do that or that's just not their line of work? Well, that's not their line of work. I mean, the, 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 I think what people don't fully appreciate is that every year the CDC, working closely with their local public health counterparts, administer about 80 million uh, people get vaccinated each year. So they do this on a regular basis with other vaccines. So rather than reinvent the wheel, it was felt let the logistics, which the army is really good at, you know, they could get a, you know, thousands and thousands of tanks (laughs) to a place pretty easily. We can figure they can get some vaccine to Walmart's. The last thing we need to do is reinvent any other wheels. We've been doing enough of that in 2020. Uh, I'm Major Garrett. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout in just a second. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Dr. Anthony Fauci, our country's best and best known infectious disease specialist uh, at the National Institutes of Health is our special guest. Dr. Fauci, thinking back to... The almost daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefings, net positive or 
a net negative? I think it's mixed, um, Major, and I, the reason I think it's mixed because getting uh, information that's important information out to the public on a regular basis is a positive thing. I think what actually happened after a while, it, as, in, as unfortunately in many situations, things became a little bit politicized with divisiveness showing in that regard. So uh, all in all, I'd say it probably, the net was positive because information came out, but I think most people would view it as being mixed. So anyone who reads the history of a president and those who work for him know that you don't always have to agree to be effective. And I don't want to ask you any questions about your relationship with the president. What I want to ask you is, was there ever a time when you felt you couldn't say something you needed to say about this issue? Uh, the honest answer to that, Major, is no. I always felt I could say, and I did say what I felt about a particular issue uh, without getting into the politics, but I'm talking about a medical or public health policy issue. I've done that, and as you know, you don't need me to say it, there have been bumps along the road there. <laughs> uh, but I've always, long before I got involved with this administration, I've been doing this now, as you know, for over 36 years with six administrations, and the one thing I learned right from the very first time I briefed President Reagan in the 1980s is that sometimes you have to say things that people don't want to hear. Uh, and how they react to what they don't want to hear varies from administration to administration and person to person. The one thing you need to do to maintain your credibility is to always know you need to say what is the truth and not compromise. Uh, and that's what I've tried to do. So it's been not always smooth, but that's what I've done. How frequently have you spoken to President-elect Biden's transition team? Well, I've spoken to Ron Klain a couple of times over the past couple of weeks. They have not been, uh, shall we say, substantive about where we're going, but enough to say, you know, hang in there. You know, we, we're, we're going to be doing a few things that we'll tell you about. It's, it's fortuitous, Major, that in a couple of hours, I'm actually meeting with the entire what we call landing team. When you have transitions, you have teams of people. Yes. Uh, well, you, I know, I'm sorry, I know you're very familiar with that. Well, I'm going to be meeting with them today by Zoom, by, by virtually. So today will be the first day where there will be substantive discussions about the transmission between the transition between me and the Biden team. And do you expect those to accelerate and become almost daily occurrences between now and <clears throat> January 20th? You know, I hope so, Major, because I, I, as I've often said, you know, having served six administrations, I've been through five transitions. And I know that transitions are really important if you want to get a smooth handing over of the responsibility. So I'm very pleased that today we're having the first discussion about a number of things, vaccinations and things like that. Would you have preferred that that occurred three weeks earlier? Uh, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I, w I would have liked to have seen us getting involved with the team as early as we possibly can because you want the smooth transition to occur and time is going by and lives were lost as the president-elect said well you know I, mean, I i don't want to get into that kind of quantitation of the number of lives i just would say that everything everyone believes that a smooth transition is certainly better than no transition have you talked to the president-elect directly i have not yet spoken to president-elect biden i would expect that within a reasonable time i likely will will you stay on 
Yeah, I mean, my job, as you know, Major, is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. That is a career job. That's not a political appointment. I certainly will stay on in that position. And the extent to which the president-elect wants me to get involved in the kinds of things I'm doing now, I'm almost certain that he's going to want me to do that because that's that's what I do. (laughs) That's what you do. So... Of all the things that we talked about, vaccine distribution and stressed hospitals, do you believe that there is something that must be done before Congress adjourns to inject more money into this situation to make sure all of the things that need to happen happen effectively and efficiently? I think that's an absolute necessity because the system is stressed. I mean, it's easy for me to get up and say, which I have, and and I say that with some degree of of empathy and not just coldly that, you know, some of the times you're going to have to, when you do things like avoid congregate settings, you're really talking about closing bars and having restaurants either closed or at uh, not maximum capacity. That comes at a great economic strain to the people who own those establishments. So I believe strongly, and I'm speaking as a layman in this because that's not my thing, But I I see so clearly that if you're asking these establishments to shut down or to diminish their capacity, you've got to come in and help them or they'll get economically destroyed. (laughs) So we really need to help out during this very difficult time. And that's what the relief packages are about. So one thing that we've learned talking to experts throughout all of this uh, is that we've gotten better in hospitals dealing with the virus. We're not as unsure about what to do and how to treat it as doctors were quite understandably in March and April. Yet the death rates, as we discussed at the very beginning of this conversation, remain high. Why is that? You know, it isn't that the death rates remain high. The deaths total remain high. And the reason that, you know, it's very important because people say, well, the death rates are down. Well, you know, they may be down as a rate, but, you know, if you have a thousand people with a high rate and then you have a hundred thousand people with a low rate, you're going to get more people dying at the low rate with the larger amount of people. The trouble that we're having now is that when you have 200,000 cases a day and 99,000 hospitalizations, you could have a moderately low death rate and still have a lot of deaths. And that's what we're seeing. You can't walk away from those figures. We're having over 2,000 deaths a day now. That's a lot of deaths. And statistically, are they still most concentrated in those who are older and have underlying health issues? The answer, Major, is yes, that is the case. However, and this is a big however, as we get more cumulative experience with this, we're starting to see that a substantial proportion now, not just one or two percent, but a substantial proportion of the hospitalizations are among people 40, 50, 59, so between 40 and 60. Back then, we always thought, well, either you're 85 or you're okay. It isn't. We're starting to see people who are in that age range that they're not young teenagers or 20s, But they're not 85 either, and they're getting hospitalized. When you get a younger person hospitalized, obviously the chances of their dying are less than an 85-year-old frail person. 
but they still get substantial morbidity and some of them actually die. You see examples of it on TV every night. If you just exactly. turn the TV on, you that, see that. That is the voice of Dr. Anthony Fauci, America's most important and best known infectious disease specialist. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. Join us again next week for CBSN and those on the podcast platform. Takeout Special is next. Stay with us. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for being with us. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Our special guest, Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Fauci, continuing our conversation, uh, it was revealed recently that the earliest now confirmed cases of at least coronavirus antibodies in American blood was found through a survey of those blood donors in December of 2019, if I have that down correctly. What is important about that and what new information does that convey to us, if any? Well, what it conveys, Major, is something that is not that surprising. So it is clear that there was infection that was going on at the community level in the Wuhan district of China, you know, in December and maybe even earlier. The actual recognition or at least the report of it was at the very end of December. So it makes sense, given the enormous amount of travel that occurs be prior to the shutdowns, that occurs between China, including Wuhan, and the United States, particularly the west coast of the United States, it is not surprising to me at all that before we even recognized what was going on, that people were coming from China into the United States and under the radar screen, you were getting spread of infection. So when you formally recognize something at the end of December, the beginning of January, in the realm of infectious disease, it's never surprising that what was actually going on was taking place several weeks before. So that's not a surprising finding at all on my part. And not necessarily patients or patient zero, but there was trace elements or evidence that this virus had already arrived. Absolutely. And now that we know here in December of 2020 that a lot of the infection is without symptoms and people can spread it even without symptoms, it makes perfect sense that this was going on under the radar screen and we weren't noticing it. People were getting sick and pneumonia, but that happens all the time in the winter anyway. So we were likely missing it. I've heard you say, and many experts we've talked to throughout this have said, science will humble you. Medicine will humble you. I imagine this has humbled you. What do you think that in retrospect, you either over emphasized or didn't emphasize enough or just got flat wrong? You know, I think a, a number of things we didn't get 100% right. Some things we got wrong. The thing that's about science, it humbles you, but it's self-correcting. I think what we did not realize in the beginning, and likely because of some misinformation that was coming in from China, was how extraordinarily efficient this virus is from spreading from person to person in an asymptomatic way. That is really the silent disaster that you see where you think, well, this person's sick and that person is sick. You don't realize there are many people under the radar screen that are spreading the virus that are really not sick. We did not appreciate that 
back in January and February. It was only as we started to see community spread at a level that could not be explained purely by people who had symptoms. Had we known that early on, we may have been much more aggressive in, in our, in our uh, preventive measures at that time. So, you know, you could always go back and say, if we had to do it over again, we would. There were a lot of things we didn't appreciate then that we know now. The, the humbleness of science is that it self-corrects also. And is there something self-correcting going on in our understanding of whether or not it's safe to go to school? You know, there is. I mean, in the beginning, there was always, a, you know, a, a clear concern that children, as with influenza, would be spreading infection. What we're seeing now is that it is better to keep the children at school. So long as you have a plan of what to do if the kids get infected and how do you protect the teachers, that's really important. But in general, the spread among children in school is less than in the community. So as we always say, the best way to best safeguard the children is to get the level of community spread low. It's not the school that's the problem. We always say, you know, and it sometimes becomes a soundbite, but it's true, close the bars and keep the schools open. That's the best way to keep the schools open is to close the bars. So long as you help the people who own the establishment from economic room. Well, that picks up on a point that one of our colleagues, Dr. Tara Narula, has often said to us, it seemed like in this country we worked harder to keep the bars open than we did to keep the schools open. Right. That is true. And that's something that right now, looking forward, we've got to remember, we don't want to shut down the country, but there are certain venues that are particularly difficult in that they contribute to the spread. And no doubt, bars, crowded restaurants, theaters, places like that, where you have indoor setting of people who generally don't wear masks. You don't wear a mask when you're drinking a beer, and you don't wear a mask when you're eating a dish of spaghetti. (laughs) The fact is, when you're in that situation, that's where spreading occurs. Before I let you go, last question, Dr. Fauci. Considering all the things that we discussed about the next six to eight weeks, I know you said we don't need a national lockdown, but already places like Los Angeles are essentially ordering stay-at-home requirements or suggestions. Do you believe we will see more of that in the next six to eight weeks because we will just have to do things that are that stringent? Yeah, I think the answer, even though people don't like it, the answer is going to be yes, because once you get to the point where you are stretching the hospital system, you don't want to be in the unthinkable situation of having to choose who is going to live and who is going to die. That's something that's just unimaginable. So the only way sometimes that you could prevent that is to do really stringent prevention. And in some areas, not all, in some areas that may be a temporary lockdown. That is entirely conceivable. I don't think we're going to see that centrally for the country, but I think in some selected areas they will have to make that choice either close down a lot of things or have the hospital system overrun. Dr. Anthony Fauci, it's been my great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time, sir. I appreciate it. Major, great. Thanks. Always good to be with you. Thank you. See you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio.
If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.